check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, Anna Geiger here, and I'm very excited today to kick off our series about fluency with Dr. Jan Hasbrook. Dr. Hasbrook is a big name in the science of reading community because she's been a player for about 50 years. She is a researcher, educational consultant, and author. In the past, she was a reading specialist and a literacy coach, as well as a college professor, and now still, after all these years, very active in helping people understand the science of reading. We had such a good conversation that I split this episode into two. So this week, we're going to meet Dr. Hasbrook, learn more about her experience in the field of education, and learn why the concept of fluency is so complicated and how it's a lot more than just reading quickly. I was a bit nervous as I was getting set up to welcome Dr. Hasbrook, and I chose the wrong audio for myself. So I apologize. My audio is a little muddy, but Dr. Hasbrook comes in loud and clear. So we'll get started right after the intro. Welcome to Triple R Teaching, where we encourage you to think differently about education by helping you reflect, refine, and recharge. This isn't just about trying something new as you educate those entrusted to your care. We'll equip you with simple strategies and practical tips that will fill your toolbox and reignite your passion for teaching. It's time to reflect, refine, and recharge with your host, Anna Geiger. Hello, everybody. Anna Geiger here, and I am so excited to welcome Dr. Jan Hasbrook to the podcast today. She is an educational consultant, author, and researcher, and if you're familiar with the science of reading, you've definitely seen her around. She is retired now, but still does a lot for the science of reading by giving a lot of presentations and webinars, and so we're going to welcome her and ask her to introduce herself. Hello, Dr. Hasbrook. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah, and uh, you know, one little correction there about me being retired. I am no longer affiliated with a university or any agency specifically like that, but I am busier than ever. And there's a lot of people, I think, my colleagues, peer colleagues from my generation in this field, particularly in reading, who find it kind of impossible to fully yes. retire because our mission is so important. And the, uh, the eager curiosity that so many teachers have about what are the best practices, what does evidence say, what is this thing called the science of reading? Speaking for myself, when I feel like I can be helpful to people answering those questions and translating this incredibly complex information into the complex world of classroom teaching. Uh, there's sort of a mission involved in that, uh, maybe a moral obligation. Mm -hmm. So I can't call myself <laughs> retired. Certainly my kids, my family would not, <laughs> would not call me retired. Retired's got to look a little different from what I'm doing, right? Yeah, now. well, it's true. I, I definitely appreciate hearing from, like you said, people of your generation are very, very busy presenting at so many summits and workshops, and that's just been really helpful to the rest of us who are still trying to figure all this out. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you got into education and, and transitioned into more of a professor role? Yeah, sure. Um, I kind of always thought I would be a teacher. I dabbled around in a few other things, uh, trying to see if teaching was a right fit for me. And 
uh, it really was. And I was guided by teacher mentors along the way because it seemed like every, every as I was moving through school, that was what I wanted to teach. When I was in elementary school, I thought for sure I'll be a fourth grade teacher. When I got to middle school, <laughs> middle school biology was what I wanted to do. Um, and it was a high school English teacher, actually, that first planted the seed about being a reading specialist. But that really finalized when I uh, was in my undergrad training at the University of Oregon and actually very frustrated with the education I was receiving uh, initially at very fast, huge Facebook group called mm-hmm. The Science of Reading, What I Should Have Learned in College. I really resonate with that because I was sitting in those courses and just kept feeling frustrated. When, when are they going to teach me how to teach? And by a set of just amazing, life-changing happenstances, I connected with somebody else who was studying teaching, but she was in a different program at the University of Oregon where they were focusing on direct instruction. She said, you should go over there because they're looking for students. Um, So I did, um, and I interviewed, and they took me on, and that was during my junior year of undergrad. So very early, I got started with um, understanding what explicit systematic instruction. It's interesting for me to hear a lot of people feel like this is just a new (laughs) discovery. When I was 19 years old, I was working with Zig Engelman, who taught us what explicit systematic instruction was. We were taught how to do continuous phonation in letters for phonics. I mean, all of this stuff is at least 50 years old, Not, but it's been confirmed. The current research has been confirming that. So that work, then I stayed on working with that group, the direct instruction folks at the University of Oregon. And they had a master's program um, that involved me doing work with them, training other teachers. There was a huge multi-year research project, federally funded research project called Project Follow-Through that was going on. I became one of the trainers um, flying around the country and working with teachers in various follow-through sites. Uh, And then I decided I really needed to get into the real world, so I got a job as a reading specialist. And I did that in two different districts for about 15 years. And then my boss at the time, I was working in Springfield, Oregon, and my boss had this idea that it would be helpful if I could be supporting teachers. He really didn't have what I would now call that as a coach, a literacy coach. He didn't have that terminology. He just said, He thought it would be good if somebody, and he was looking straight at me, could go out into the schools, and he was really focused on the other reading specialists in the district. So I took on that job, and uh, within a very short period of time, and any literacy instructional coaches listening to this can resonate with the fact (laughs) that it is a rather terrifying job, especially if you have no guidance or support or job title or anything. So that uh, terror uh, sent me back to the University of Oregon uh, and trying to find, is there some knowledge base? Is there some skill set? How does one work with their peer colleagues to help them 
be the best reading teachers they can be. And um, that's where I connected with Jerry Tyndall. He was a new graduate from the University of Minnesota, and Jerry and I worked together, and he convinced me not just to study coaching and consultation, but to stay on for a doctoral program. So I, I did that at the University of Oregon and ended up then at Texas A&M University. And it's been a wonderful, exciting ride since then, being a practitioner and a researcher and also someone always connected with schools. That's where my that's where I started, that's where my heart is. And when I do research, it's always it's always very practical research. How can this be useful to teachers is is my framework for the work that I do. Well, I love that, especially because um, I think for a lot of teachers, myself included in the past, when we heard researcher, we thought, you know, someone in a coat somewhere else doesn't know anything about the classroom. And it's really helpful to hear your experience that maybe many researchers were teachers already and understand how to translate it. And it's also very interesting for me to hear your background because maybe you have seen how the science of reading has really just kind of blown up in the last couple of years. Um, I just did a, like a 10 part blog series with people who had transitioned more from a balanced to structured approach and almost everybody, it was like 2019 when Emily Hanford's article came out that people started thinking about it. But for you having a long career watching balanced literacy kind of take over before we get into fluency, I would just love to hear your perspective on that a little bit and what that was like for you. Uh, it was rather horrifying for me through all the iterations early on when whole language emerged as the answer, the way we should be teaching in classrooms. It was apparent to me from the beginning, just theoretically, it didn't make sense. That notion that the belief system that the acquisition of language, which is natural and supported biologically, we know a whole lot more about that now, but we've always known that. But then they rested their theory that, well, since learning to read is intrinsically aligned with language, if we support reading, the acquisition of reading and language in the same way we support the acquisition of language, just in this natural, rich environment, making sure kids are exposed to all this stuff. Um, uh, I was quite certain that that was not going to be successful for all kids. And we, we now know so much more. We, we know more about uh, how different groups of, of children do acquire the skills of reading and writing in different ways and for different reasons. But there is a percentage of children, um, we don't know exactly because we're always talking about human beings, but there's it, it could be up to 50%, maybe a little bit more than 50% of kids who do learn to read and write relatively easily. You give them some kind of guidance, some kind of support, and voila, they become readers and writers. Um, but my entire career has been focused on the children not in that group, the kids who struggle. And um, I watched the implementation of then whole language and then balanced literacy for the children for whom reading and writing is uh, a painstaking acquisition. Mm -hmm. And just so frustrated that those very popular ways of teaching just became the primary way that teachers were being prepared in universities and knowing that if there wasn't quality research to support that, 
that uh, was ultimately going to fail mm -hmm. our children. Uh, you know, in my career now, of close to 50 years, I've seen these things come and go. And I had a conversation just this week with some people about, is this going to be, is the science of reading going to be mm -hmm. a fad? Just like whole language came and went, balanced literacy came. Um, and I don't think it is going to be a fad because of social media. That's the difference. Back in the whole language days, we didn't have social, we didn't have an mm -hmm. internet, <laughs> we didn't have social. Yeah. Balanced literacy has emerged during this period, but we now have teachers who can get online and ask the questions and find podcasts like you are doing and so many others like the, the Science of Reading Facebook group, the Reading mm -hmm. League. It's much, much easier to sort through the noise and find the truth. And, and we are seeing people, some of the leaders of that alternative movement, if you want to call it that, being persuaded to at least adopt some of the language <laughs> of the science of reading. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's so interesting to hear uh, your perspective after your years in education. Um, I'm going to switch over to fluency now, and I'm going to start by reading yeah. the definition from the book that you wrote with Dr. Deb Glazer. And this is probably the most complete definition I've read. So we'll start with that, and then we'll talk about even with this nice, clean definition, why the concept of fluency is kind of hard to wrap our heads around. So you wrote that fluency is reasonably accurate reading at an appropriate rate with suitable expression that leads to accurate and deep comprehension and motivation to read. And yours may be the only definition I found that actually incorporates comprehension inside of it, which is wonderful. Um, can you talk to us about, you know, why it's still so hard to, to grasp the concept of fluency and, and how to build it? I think it is uh, hard to grasp because it seems so mm. simple when you first talk about it. And it's often talked about and discussed incorrectly by conflating speed with fluency. In fact, in the wonderful National Reading Panel, in their chapter on fluency, a couple of times they talk about fluency by first describing it as reading fluency is reading quickly. And I know, because I know some of the folks who served on that panel and wrote those pieces, that if they had a chance to go back and do it again, they would not write about fluency means reading quickly. Of course, they didn't stop there. They didn't say it's reading quickly, but they put speed mm -hmm. first. They put, you know, fluency is reading quickly. And that does get uh, conflated with this more, much more complex construct called fluency, because when we are listening to a fluent reader, they are reading quickly, mm -hmm. usually, not super fast, because if they're truly reading for comprehension, which is the really the reason we read, you can read too fast, that diminishes comprehension. We all, most of us, or a lot of us, worry about or concerned about the kids who read too slowly. Rate is only one piece of this complex construct. In fact, when Deb and I wrote our first version of the book, and a lot of people will still have that first version of the book, we don't have a second edition, but we were recently given the opportunity to do some updates. Um, and several times in the book, we referred to fluency as a skill. And we wanted to reel that back a little bit. It, it's not a skill that you teach. 
It is, and I love uh, Hollis Scarborough's infographic reading rope, which is ubiquitous these days, mm-hmm. every, everywhere. I don't do workshops mm-hmm. without showing Scarborough's rope. But I think if we, if we look at the end of that rope, that tightly woven, where all those strands come together and it's tightly woven, she refers to that as fluent, skillful reading. It's an outcome of all of those component pieces acquired to the level of automaticity. And automaticity is really the combination of accuracy, and we should always talk about accuracy first, as Deb and I do in our definition. Accuracy is the foundation of fluency. You cannot get to fluency through rate. Rate isn't going to do it. You have to have accuracy. In our definition, reasonable. doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be reasonable to allow comprehension. And the rate has to be appropriate. Sometimes it is appropriate to read more slowly. We're really reading complex, dense information. It's high stakes information. We should slow down. And other times it's appropriate to read more quickly. But the ability to adjust that, maintain your accuracy and read at an appropriate rate is is automaticity. And we have the that outcome, that tightly woven rope, is indicative of automaticity of all of those strands in Scarborough's rope. You have automaticity in language, receptive and expressive language. You have automaticity in um, the underlying components of word recognition and identification, phoneme awareness and phonics, and and uh, you've moved toward orthographically mapped word sight recognition. As you, as a as a new novice learner acquires each of those individual skills and components and then through practice and instruction becomes increasingly automatic at that, that's the outcome of fluency. So I think it's the fact that some of us have mistakenly referred to it as a skill that that's kind of conflating and confusing. The fact that it is so a really a multifaceted aspect of reading and um, it's, an, it's an outcome and the way that people have described it and talked about it and thought about it as yeah. speed. Um, it's reading quickly. It, it is not reading quickly. Can you explain its, its, um, its role in the overall task of reading? Well, that's uh, the overall task. It's very quick, easy to say that fluency is necessary for comprehension. That's that's the role. That, I mean, in a, in you know just a few words, the purpose of fluency, the reason we care about fluency, the reason we work so hard to help our students become fluent is because of comprehension. And the National Reading Panel and most other people get that exactly right about fluency. That fluency is necessary, but not sufficient for comprehension. And I hear that all the time from my colleagues, especially those who specialize in working with children uh, who are English learners or, um, or, or struggle with language acquisition in some way. They often say to me that I've got kids who are fluent, but they don't comprehend. And I say, of course, <laughs> you need uh, both aspects of Scarborough's rope. You need both uh, component pieces. So I have, I agree with everyone, and I want everybody to understand that fluency is necessary, 
but not sufficient. So those people who are saying my English learners, many of them are very fluent readers, but they are really word callers. Mm -hmm. They don't comprehend, yes, because the they have acquired automaticity in word reading. And that's fabulous because that will help them open that door to comprehension. But we need to develop their language so that they can interweave language with their good reading, word reading skill. And then, we, of course, we know there's a lot of children who have the opposite. They have superb language, um, but struggle with automatic word uh, recognition. So we've got, we've got plenty of work to do. But the, your question, the purpose of fluency is, is comprehension. And then we, as you noted in our definition, Deb Glazer and I stuck motivation on there. And that, uh, and I stand behind that and Deb does too. That's not something we've changed in the update of our book. It's not based on good rigorous science as much as it is our, I don't know, 127 years of clinical practice, we have yet to meet a reader who struggles with fluency, who's also a highly motivated reader. There is a connection between fluency and motivation. And um, of course, just like comprehension, becoming fluent doesn't guarantee motivation at all. But if if a reader struggles with reading fluently, motivation is not going to be um, available to them. It's not going to be part of their reading experience. I love reading. <laughs> I struggle with it, but I just love it. Right. Yeah. That, that and work. we know that if they're not motivated to read, they won't keep reading. And that's where the vocabulary and the background knowledge keeps building. Um, a lot of people talk about fluency now, but I know that wasn't always the case. Can you, in your, in your career, have you seen when fluency became more of a hot topic and what's your perspective on that? Uh, I would say fluency became a hot topic in in the year 2000, just like we can point to the explosion in interest in the science of reading to uh, Emily Hanford's work. It was the National Reading Panel that, that came out with their report with the five main chapters, and one of them was fluency. Um, and in the be- at the beginning of that chapter, they did say something. They quoted, I think, uh, Dick Allington's work, or but just saying that fluency is necessary for skillful reading, but it is neglected in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I'm paraphrasing, but something like that. They definitely used the word neglected. It's uh, neglected. Well, that certainly changed um, at that point, and people then. I think that along with the relatively new, they were not new, they'd been around for about 15 years at that point, those curriculum-based measures of oral reading fluency, right around that time, those measures became more known to the general population and people confused the measures of oral reading fluency with this outcome of reading fluency that was so important and we started teaching kids to read Mm -hmm. fast to get their uh, oral reading fluency scores up uh, without really understanding what was going on. But you're right. Some around before the year 2000, you didn't see a whole lot of, of discussion around fluency. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Dr. Hasbrook. Next week, we're going to talk more about ORF, oral reading fluency, 
what we can learn from the results of a words correct per minute assessment and what we can't learn and what to do after we get those results. In the show notes for today's episode, you will get links to the books that Dr. Hasbrook has written, as well as a big collection of YouTube presentations I could find that she's given for various groups. And you can find those show notes at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 97. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.